There is no more joyful day in my life during the week than this Sunday morning. I get to be with your people. The ones that you have called out of darkness into your marvelous light. They gather. They're called the church, the bride, the family of God, and here they are. Ready to sing praises to their God and Savior. Ready to fellowship and meet needs with one another. Ready to give to the needs of the church and missions around the world. Ready to respond to our great God and Savior. There is no better day than coming to church on Sunday. So I thank you that we can gather today. And I pray as we look at this glorious passage today. That you encourage our hearts not only to be gazing to the future of what you have in store for us, but to motivate us in this life. You have so much that awaits us. And we run well. And I pray that this passage will strengthen us to do those things. We'll lay aside those things that so easily beset us, so easily stumble us. we lay aside those things so we can run well for your glory and for our joy. Lord, I thank you that we're not alone. River Bend is a, is a local body of Christ that assembles here in Ormond Beach, but we are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is spread around the globe in many languages and cultures and societies all over. You have your people and they are worshiping you today. And we join with them. Lord, someday in our new resurrected bodies, we will join with the anthem of all of the elect from all time brought before your knees to sing worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so, Lord, we long for those days. And so help us keep serving, giving, running, keeping the faith, holding on to this great truth that you have blessed us with. And, Lord, we want to finish well. Whenever that time may be, whether you come and get us and we meet you in the air or we go in this life and die in this life, Lord, and our souls are immediately with you, whatever that is, whatever your sovereign decision is, that may we finish this life well. So I pray, Lord, as we look at this text, you'll strengthen us to do just those things. In Jesus' name, amen. As you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm getting close to the end of this. I purposely did not have Brian read verse 58. I'm going to hold that for next week. 57 verses of doctrine, one verse of application. That's what, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is. 57 verses of doctrine of the resurrection. One verse of application. But boy, is it powerful. And I can't wait to preach it next week, and I'm excited about that. But we want to conclude looking at verses 50 through 57 here. And last week we stepped into what we would call the nature of the resurrection, verses 35 through 49. We enjoyed that passage together. And Paul is confronting this false teaching that has, in a sense, ridiculed and, and mocked a bodily resurrection in the church of Corinth. They, they could not conceive that a person could rise from the dead, a dead body that has gone under decay. They cannot perceive in their minds that that was of God. The lies of a Gnosticism and the 
myths of the Jews had led many to a false view of the resurrection. Paul countered that strongly, particularly last week, by using the illustration of the miraculous seed, right? You remember this. The seed goes in the ground. Uh, There it dies and decays. But what comes from it is this marvelous, nothing that looks anything like the seed, this marvelous, fruitful branch or tree or whatever the seed would come from. Now, Paul went on, as we remember, to consider all kinds of different bodies, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. He showed the uniqueness of each glory from earth to heaven in that passage. And he highlighted the great triumph through the resurrection of dead by saying, and you look back just in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. He's highlighted. It's sown in perishable body. That's this body. But it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. And we, we talked about that at the end of our life. If you've been around someone who's lived a long time and, and you look at their body as they are going towards death or even after their death and, and you looked at that picture of their high school reunion or their prom, <laughs> they look very different, don't they? And so Paul says we were sown in dishonor but raised in glory. There's a complete difference there. We were sown in weakness, raised in power. Some of the greatest athletes that have ever accomplished the greatest things, if they go on to live, they will become extremely weak. Those who set the records and ran the fastest and did the greatest things will soon be pushed by someone much younger than them. And so Paul says... The weak must be raised in power. It was sown a natural body. Seed was conceived in the womb of your mother. And and it was a natural body. And once you began to be born, you began to die in a sense. But it will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, he says, there has to be a spiritual body. This is a mark as... Unattractive as this is, as it gets older, it tells me God has something greater. And I've got to remember that. When times are hard, when life is difficult, when the body does not do what we would like it to do. Here we find that the Word of God is reminding those in Corinth and reminding us today that God has a power that is sufficient to raise our bodies to glorious new bodies. It's speaking of his power, not ours. And just as God has willed that we should have bodies fit for this life that need to be on this earth, that need oxygen and so forth here, so he has willed for us to have eternal spiritual bodies forever. A body that never wears out, but a body that is recognizable and unique And it's like his son. It's hard not to see as you look at this passage that the Apostle Paul is insisting on a bodily life of eternity. You can't overlook that. He's insisting on it. It is not some spiritually sparklies floating around out there. It is physical body, but it is a new body. And he's working hard to get that across to us. And I think Paul understands that there were those who thought that their eternal existence was just obscure. 
And I thought about that a lot this week. How, how rude <laughs> to look at God that way. How, how degrading to God that he would rescue us from damnation and then just let us have some immaterial body. That's not God. <laughs> That's not a loving father. Our father says, you'll be like my son. I mean, that's astounding, isn't it? What deep love he has for his children. And yet people get pontificating and trying to reason and trying to think through their own thoughts, and this is what they came up with. Look at television today or movies. You're either a zombie or you're bones that are white and maybe have flowers painted on them. This is the best they can come up with. And God's word says, no, no. You'll be like my son. Nothing short of that. Man always falls short when he tries to do or talk about or create something that only God can create. That's why we go to the scriptures, brothers and sisters. And so Paul saw that this was a rejection of the authority of God, the power of his sovereignty. It was a rejection of his word. And he wants them to be left with no doubt that eternal life will be physical and it will be infinitely more glorious than this life. And that's what he's doing in this chapter. It's for us. It's for us that suffer in this life. that We realize there's so much more to come. The necessity of a true spiritual body like our Lord Jesus has, one that will enjoy with the redeemed, a family in heaven. It allows us image bearers to see that God uniquely loves each and every one of us. And so he will make us unique. We will be like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will be recognizable. We'll be those ones God chose to give life to with our uniqueness. So here Paul, in his inspired instruction, is in complete contrast to Judaism and agnostics. And he takes a beating for these things because he wants to talk and teach things of God versus things of man. Jesus rebuked Peter when he, when he wanted to deny Jesus' death. Remember he says, Satan, what? Get behind me. But then he says, Peter, you are thinking like a man. You are not thinking like God. That's the danger, isn't it? Come to the word of God only thinking like a man. Oh, boy, what can I get for this today? Huh? Oh, I'm so needy, I'm so needy. Start thinking like God when you come to the scriptures in a sense. Who is he? I want to know him. I want to know his power and authority. I wanna, I'm going to spend my life in his presence. Who is this one? Oh, you'll find such fulfillment in the scriptures. And that's the way we come and study. Well, this text is going to say we all must be changed. I love that phrase. I'm so happy for that phrase. I want the change. <laughs> People in this life are trying to change, right? Change their gender, change their marriage, change all kinds of change. What a disaster. 
Here's a change coming. You're going to have a glorious body when you die. Believer. If you're not a believer, you will too be raised and you, God will give you a body that will suffer for eternity as judgment's poured out on you. But the Bible highlights the believer's body. Highlights us to be like Christ. And so we will no longer have bodies subjected to death and decay. Isn't that beautiful? And in this most familiar passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can sit back, and I, I, I want to be careful because you go, oh boy, this is great. I just can't wait to get there. If you never get to praise, you miss the passage. If you never get to worship and get to the understanding that this passage is a crescendo of worship to the resurrection power of God through Jesus Christ, you miss the passage. Because that's how he ends. And that's how we'll end today. Well, let's look at a couple thoughts this morning. The end of the line for the perishable body. The end of the line for the perishable body. Look at verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Well, you start to look at this passage, I, you know, there's definitely a clear break here. And, and he starts, and you know that, because now I say this. He, he, he's coming to, to identify an assertion. Paul wants to assert something here. It's something that needs a heightened significance given to it. It's of great importance. And then he's, he brings to a group of people, he says, brethren. And this term we've learned through this text that, that references men and women. It is the unique church. It is those who have received salvation. And maybe he's doing this because he wants to separate or draw out the true believers from those false teachers that are in the church. Remember, that's where most false teaching, the most deadly false teaching, the most difficult things on the church come from within the church. Paul warned of that, and it still happens today, and it's happened here. That's difficult. It hurts. And so here he talks to the brethren. He's drawing them out away from those who are drawing away from Christ. He's trying to draw them to Christ. And he says, brethren, I want to get your attention. I want to help you grasp the great transformation, the resurrection that will bring you into the presence of the Lord. And he says this, namely, here's what it is, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, they are thinking that, well, we're taking this thing, I guess he's saying, or maybe there is some kind of resurrection that the Jews taught, is that we come in this decaying flesh and blood. I think that's where we get so much of the view of death today. People still in their flesh and blood. But he says here clearly, and I love the, the strength of this, that flesh and blood cannot, you should have that circled in your Bible, Mark, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood's always been a common reference for, for life, right? We see it throughout the scriptures. Some of my favorite are Galatians chapter 1. This is where Paul is defending his apostolic position. Verse 15, he says, but when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb. So right there it tells you this is very physical, right? And called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he said this, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood. Meaning, he goes on to tell you, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't, I didn't go to the apostles and get all this. The Lord taught him in the desert. And then eventually he says, yes, I did meet with Peter and so forth. But he's using that as a reference. That's flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. Probably the greatest reference and my, my favorite when we get to the incarnation is what Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 say. 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render power to him that had power over death, that is the devil, and might free us from the fear of death and subject to slavery. So Jesus here, the Bible teaches us that because we are flesh and blood, he became flesh and blood. That's the incarnation. This is what is the theme of Christmas for Christians. Christ steps out of heaven, adds flesh and blood to his divine nature. He becomes man, perfect in his humanity, perfect in his deity, and he makes his way to the cross and then to the resurrection. But he shares in flesh and blood. And so the term flesh and blood draws us to the attention of two really important aspects of our bodies, right? Flesh and blood. Uh, And these things are, are a symptomatic problem, right? Cancer. Disease, blood problems, high blood pressure, blood sugar problems, flesh, uh, cancer cells, those kind of things. This is what it's talking about. We understand this. And, and, and so the Bible said this flesh and blood is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It speaks of our weaknesses. It speaks of our humanity under this fall. And the terms used throughout the New Testament always regarding physical beings. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to get across. God has something greater. He has a great gift for this new internal, eternal bodies. And then flesh and blood, which in and of themselves, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God so they'll be done away. In other words, these bodies of ours cannot, listen to this, they can't participate in the kingdom. They're not going with us. They're excluded in the ideas and the teaching and the theology of the resurrection. You're not going, body. But you are going. Your body's not going. You're going. And he will outfit you with a body forever. Now, I think this is why Paul works so hard to get this across. Because the teaching, maybe today, and maybe you're a good Bible student, and you say, I, I, I don't know why they got there. But when all you've heard is the Greek-dominating theology or Greek-dominating agnostic views, particularly in Corinth, or you were raised in Jewish rabbinical teaching, and all you've heard is that's impossible, you can see why he's working so hard, why he gives so many great illustrations of seeds going to the ground to produce something more granulous. Now, Paul has never envisioned these bodies to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there are a lot of things we do inherit. I, I just thought about a few, just verses off the top of a hand. We inherit eternal life in heaven, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to come back to that verse in a minute. We inherit fellow heirship with Jesus Christ. You become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You inherit that. We inherit, we inherit and share in the inheritance of the saints, Colossians 1.12. We share in that inheritance. But our earthly flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at the second part of verse 50. He does something here to help us grasp this. Is. Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. It's a parallelism here, right? It's a parallelism. He's trying to help us understand the first statement. He's driving home his point. And this is what he basically goes back to verse 42 through 44. And perishable body is raised in imperishable. So here he says nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
If you go away for a long period of time and you leave perishable things out, what do they look like when they come back? Or what should I say, what do they smell like? <laughs> that ain't going with you. That's what Paul's trying to do. He wants to help you understand that perishable has no part of this. And, and, and think about this. It's amazing that in, in heaven, there's nothing perishable or corruptible in heaven. Think through that for just a moment. And then think about this. Everything on earth is perishable and, and can be destroyed. First, Second Peter chapter 3 says God's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. Everything we have here, outside of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, our, our, our relationship, our union with Christ, everything else is perishable. Nothing's perishable in heaven. That's amazing to me. Is that not a different life than we live? Every day or every other day or once a week, you're headed to the supermarket, aren't you? You need to eat constantly. Your car needs fuel. I mean, everything is just perishable. And of course, the environmentalists and all those people who just worship the earth, they're just going crazy over this because they can't imagine living forever. What's, our resources are going to run out. Yeah, it's going to run out. God's going to destroy the whole earth. You're trying to worry about a dead dinosaur. You've got bigger problems. The earth is perishable. It's corruptible. And we understand that. And though, hey, look, let me be honest. We're good stewards of it. We take care of things. We're, we're managers of God's creations. And so we handle those things correctly. But they're not our God. We keep those in right balance. But look, we... Look forward to something greater. First Peter chapter 3, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All comes through him. Remember, if Christ is raised from the dead, we're raised from the dead. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, you're dead. You're, you're dying your sins. Then, he says, from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you and protected by God himself. What a statement. And, and yet you and I, what do we do? We're just white-knuckle things on this earth, don't we? Man, somebody parked too close to my car out in the church parking lot. <laughs> I'm out there by the woods trying to keep my car from being dented. And can you believe this? Somebody took our seat. <laughs> Man, I'm getting hot now. It's getting warm in here, isn't it? A good friend of mine when I was young said, Scott, quit white-knuckling things. I, I've never forgot that. You're holding on to something so tight that's going to perish. I think you should keep track of your health. I think that's good stewardship but you might be white-knuckling it. God's ordained your days. Before there was what? One. He knows them. See, it all comes in this balance of our great heavenly Father who has our eternal life planned. He has it all for us. And so we have an inheritance that cannot be corrupted. Jesus himself in Matthew 6 and think about this, this is a good for us to help us prepare. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Where what? Moth and roughs destroy? 
We live on the beachside. There's a thing called salt. It's eaten at our house every day. It's, it's, you want to build your life around things that a little bug can destroy? Rust can build where thieves break in and steal? And Jesus says, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For, oh, here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. See, what we white knuckle tells us what's in our heart. Boy, I hope you grip this thing. I hope you're gripping this. You're gripping the gospel and you're gripping the finished work of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's where our heart is. Second thought, and this is my longer thought, and the last two will be quickly. But this, this is an amazing set of verses here. A trumpet blast with an incredibly quick change. A trumpet blast with an incredibly quick change. Look at 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Well, Paul, again, has an attention grabber here. He doesn't. He uses the word behold, or maybe your Bible might translate it look. That's, it's a word means pay attention. Listen, deeply consider this. It's trying to help them realize what's coming. The word has a, an effect of focusing your intention on what's to come. So behold, Behold, there's something better. There's something beyond ourselves. There's something beyond this life that we're white-knuckling. It helps us understand that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Behold, God's doing something. He's trying to get our attention here. And then he says this. I tell you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. Well, God has revealed a mystery here. And, and simply, when we see that in the Scriptures, it means God has revealed something that's been hidden for a long time. And we, we see this throughout the scriptures. There are things that God knows that we don't. Uh, one of my favorite verses, um, and <laughs> I better not say this because it, it was a password to something. <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. You can see why it was a password. <laughs> But the things revealed belong to you. There are things that you will not know about God. Romans 11 tells us his ways are infallible. I think that's what eternity is about, us knowing our God year after year, moment after moment, eternity, 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 knowing our God, he's infallible. And so there are certain things that are just God. We just don't know. He is a mystery in some ways. But there are things in the Old Testament that were hidden that are now revealed in the New Testament. Who's the Messiah? <laughs> I mean, that's probably the greatest revelation, the greatest mystery. All this promise from the garden, all the way from the garden, the three, Genesis 3.15, all the way is headed towards the cross. Who is this one? Born of a woman, born under the law. Who is this? And so the mysteries, there are mysteries revealed to us. There are mysteries or things hidden that God reveals to everyone. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Man is without an excuse because of the creation of this world. He has revealed himself day into day, night into night. If you look out and look at the ocean, look at the stars, you've got to realize there's a creator out there. 
and he wrote that on your heart, and it isn't until you lie long enough and loud enough, starting with the children in the school system, and then to yourself and through the Discovery Channel and everything else, you stop believing there's a God. But Romans 2.15 says he wrote it on your heart, on everyone. It isn't until you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. So God's revealed certain things to everybody. But then there's things that he only reveals to his children. And they knew this in the Old Testament. Psalms 25, verse 14. The secrets of the Lord is for those who fear him. You realize why your relatives and your friends and neighbors think you're kooky? Because they don't, they don't know who Jesus is. To them, he's a historical character somewhere in the past. To you, he's everything. He holds your life. He purchased your life. See, the secret things do belong to the Lord, but he has revealed some of those. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 32, towards the end of that, in different translations say different things here, but all from the same meaning, meaning the secret counsel is with the upright. God's wisdom is with the upright. He gives it to us through his word. And then in Matthew 13, 11, he tells his disciples because he's teaching parables and he says to them, look, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. You know, there's people in Christianity that just can't take that. They just can't, they can't handle election. They can't handle sovereignty of God. What kind of God do you want that doesn't know whose or his? that doesn't know all things, that is in control of everything that happens in every aspect of life? What kind of God do you want? I want this God. I want this God that knows all things, who's sovereign, and yet has displayed his love a million times over to me through his son and his word. That's the God we worship. Now, there are so many great mysteries revealed in the New Testament. I just jotted down a few. How about our, our eternal union with Christ? Forever and ever, God has placed me in union with Jesus Christ. I don't know. I understand that all. <laughs> That's a mystery, isn't it? Me, sinner, born 1964, desperately needing Jesus Christ has been placed in union with him forever. That's mysterious in some ways, isn't it? It's amazing. He keeps him. I never can be lost. Those who teach loss of salvation, they don't understand that mystery, do they? They don't understand anything about it. I'm in Christ forever, secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not the finished work of Scott. That's a mess, right? Ooh, ooh. But the finished work of Jesus Christ, I am, I'm secure in. How about the mystery of a Messiah, a God and Savior dwelling in human flesh. I mean, the explanation of the incarnation is astounding. That's why the early church, so many of them rejected it. What? God dwelling in this? That's where Gnosticism comes from. It's, it is amazing, isn't it? The one who has always existed who spoke creation, as Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1 says, that one steps out of heaven and takes on flesh and blood, unites it perfectly with his deity, and lives on this earth for 33 years and dies a perfect death and is raised to glorification. 
that's pretty mysterious, isn't it? But it's our hope. I mean, you can just keep going. How about the church? Ephesians 5 says the church is a mystery. I speak of a mystery. Jew, Gentile, becoming one. <laughs> when Paul writes that in Ephesians, they're like, <laughs> could that ever be? And yet, today in this church age, there's Jew, Gentile, in this room, <laughs> right here. He is united. All of the tongues and tribes and nations and our parents and our grandparents and all of those he's united at here, let alone around the world. How does he do those things? But here's one of the greatest mysteries. Look at the end of verse 51. We will not all sleep, but you will all be changed. Paul's saying, look, you can't go to heaven like this. You're not suited for eternal life in this fallen flesh and blood. So the mystery revealed is that we must all be changed. We cannot be the same. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4. I took a peek at this last week, but I want to look at it again. I think what's fascinating about both these texts is 1 Corinthians 15 really focuses on those who are alive when Christ comes back, and uh, there's a deeper focus there. But then, and you get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he really turns his attention to those who have died in Christ. So both are really good instructions, whether you've died before the return of Christ or you're still alive at the return of Christ, here's the same outcome. So they're parallel texts, depending on if you're dead or alive. But you never die, because to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So your soul is immediately with the Lord and recognizable. So then here he says, do not, I do not want you, verse 13, flip, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, to be unaware, brethren. He wants them to know this. He wants us to get this. About those who are asleep. That's our term for died, right? It's not soul sleep because the soul never sleeps. It instantly goes with the Lord. That their body is asleep. So that you will not grieve as do the rest of those with no hope. You've all been to unsafe funerals, drastic ones that happen. It's terrible. I've had to do some of them. People throwing themselves on the caskets and crying. No hope. That's why believers' funerals and memorial services are often true celebration of eternal life. <laughs> right? It's kind of funny. They call them a celebration of life. Really? That? You want to celebrate that? We want to celebrate that. God has kept this promise. But he goes on to say, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, right? Even so, God wills, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice the personal touch to this. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. You're, where I am, you will be also. You're never out of the presence as a believer with Jesus Christ alive or dead. You're always with him, bodily speaking. Look what he goes on to do. For this, verse 15, we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there is, he has a plan. If you don't get to see the return of Christ and you die and we do your funeral or you do mine, whatever happens here, you get priority. <laughs> At least your new body does. You get priority. Isn't that hopeful? Remember, they've been heard that, well, they're just going to decay the rest of eternity. No, 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 no. They get to be raised first. Some of you widows and widowers in here, man, we love you. Man, we want to encourage you. 
God has a plan for your spouse. And he already is fulfilling that. That spouse is with him right now. And I don't think they're worried about us. <laughs> I think they're just enthralled with Jesus. But he, he has a plan for their bodies and going to rejoin them. And you're going to recognize them. And it's going to be unique. And it's going to be a great reunion. And life's going to be so different. We won't need the type of relationships that we have here, marriage and children and family and all of that. It'll be so uniquely tied in Christ. It will have no flaws at all in it. So don't worry about marriage and heaven and all those things. What's coming is so much greater than what God gave us here on earth. And he's trying to remind them of this. Verse 16, for the Lord himself descended from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. There's that trumpet again. It's in our same text. When the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive. If that's up, if he comes today, man, I love it. Give me the noon, Lord. And remain, we'll be caught up together with those in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is not him on the earth at this point. This is him in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Look at that phrase. I have that just marked up. I can barely read it in my Bible. So we shall always be with the Lord. Someone's going to die soon. <laughs> I hate to tell you that. I hope it's not you. But somebody in here is going to die soon. And the first thing we're going to know when somebody dies, were they a believer? Isn't that the first question? I hope it's your first question. It's the first thought of mine. Was that person a believer? Because if it's true, if they're a believer, they'll never, ever be separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always be their Lord and Master and Savior, not their judge. And so when you see that in the passage, you should just go, oh, that's so rich. Isn't that so beautiful? Always be with the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Now go back to our text. And I gotta get moving here. Whether you're alive at Christ's return or whether your soul comes with Jesus' return and these earthly bodies, they're not gonna serve in this kingdom of God. They made that clear, right? And Paul's already dispelled the false teaching of decaying bodies rising from the dead. He's dispelled that. So now he turns his attention to the living, right? Now this is what he's doing in 1 Corinthians, saying that this flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to take this with you. So in order to enter the kingdom, you all must be changed. That's what he's saying here in our text. So Paul, in a way, has this spirit-led anticipation, maybe that the Corinthians have some questions, like, well, how is this going to happen? And is this some kind of process that, of refinement that may go? Or, or do I have to go through some kind of suffering in order to gain this spiritual body? Or is this some kind of evolution, right? I evolve into something, right? It's, this is where man goes on his own. Well, Paul's going to take this on. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in a twinkling of eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So this is where the example of the dead decaying seed does not carry over, right? And certainly, that was used to show the glorious result of the body of resurrection, but now Paul's determined to show, I wrote this in my notes, the staggering suddenness of the change from this mortal to immortality. And it's fascinating. He uses really incredible words here. 
He uses the word, in a moment, we get our English word, atom. It's atmos from this word. And, and the way it's used is it's one of the smallest possible moments of time, right? It's the shortest possible moment of time. And then to help us understand that, that our non-scientists here, he says this, in a twinkling of an eye. And that's not a blink. It's a twinkle. It, it's, it's way different. And, and just reading on this a little bit this week and kind of just enjoying the statement uh, i read many things that said the muscles in our eyes are the fastest muscles in our bodies in fact the greek words used here speak of rapid movement as possible the most rapid movement as possible well how fast is fast or how fast is a twinkle well those who understand the bible and those who understand anatomy and so forth have written on this one writer said this, a microsecond is one millionth of a second. A nanosecond is one one thousandth of a microsecond. A twinkle is said to be one sixth of a nanosecond. It's the time that, that it takes for light to enter the iris and hit the retina. you think this is like a gradual change? And who can do this? What does this remind you of? Let there be light. Bam! This is why we reject an evolutional idea that's made its way into the Christian church where God started the evolutional process. Well, why doesn't that carry on to the resurrection then? You just go and suffer for a while, and you gain, and you kind of come along. Well, that sounds familiar. See, you know, this is quick. This is God showing off his power. And it's amazing to think, and I thought about this week, that God's word wants us to know how fast our bodies will be changed. He didn't have to say, he didn't have to say a twinkling of an eye. He just said, well, it's going to be fast. Well, how fast? Well, that just distrust me. He wants you to know this. So he put it in the scriptures. So you, could, so you could say, man, my God loves me. My God shares this information with me. It tells me he cares about me. He tells me that it's a lot worth living this life and not to worry about death and decay, not to worry about disease and those things, not to worry about trying to solve the world's problems. He has the solutions. That's what it tells me. And you've probably read that a thousand times and say, well, whatever that is, that's pretty cool. That's God showing you his love. Showing you how special you are to him. And notice the rest of verse 52. And this is a fascinating um, text here. And I'm going to try to move this through quickly because this is a little more controversial. But he says, at the last trump. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Well, all of this nanosecond changes and imperishable perishable things being put off and imperishability being put on all comes at the sound of this last trump. And certainly there's a lot of eschatological views, right? Eschatological views. And some really build on this whole view of the last trump. And when it comes to the doctrine of times, I, I know that I'm not as certain on the timing of everything like I am so certain about the other nine doctrines. I, I have my views and and yet, some other guys will present some things to me. I go, oh, that's a good point. 
But there are some things here that attract my attention here. The last trump is an interesting phrase, isn't it? And again, I have dear friends who believe in one return of Christ, and, and it's at the end, and he'll gather all his re- redeemed together to himself. And, and some like to build that support from this statement here, and, and, and they may be right. They may be right. But I believe this trumpet blast is probably the, the final one in the redemptive history of the church. He's gathering them together. You will say, well, how do you know that, Scott? Because it says last trump. Well, just a quick view of the Re- book of Revelations. The trumpet judgments aren't the last. <laughs> There's still bold judgments that come. And Christ coming greatly, strongly, his robes dipped in blood. There's, there's a difference, I believe, in the, the coming of the Lord who meets the redeemed in the air here and when he comes and sets his feet on this earth again. And I think places, this is my thoughts, and I, I believe me, I have a lot of good friends who I love dearly, um, and I enjoy them. Uh, but I believe 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 has no display of judgment in them. It's Focus that, and they will say this, they'll say, well, sir, that's just a snippet of this great return of our God and Savior. They might be right. But to me, it seems that there's a clear difference between the day of the Lord, when he sets his feet on this earth as judge. And, and every commentator I read, when they spoke about this last trump, they spoke of, both guys I agree with and don't agree with, spoke of, we hear this trump in Old Testament, New Testament language, and, it's, and it t- talks about lots of things. Divine revelation of resurrection, divine revelation, divine judgment. These trump is with that. And I think one of the things that I've learned to do, and though I don't have that all figured out, and I don't think anybody does, I always try to study the Bible with a goal to come to the clearest and most literal interpretation. Good men disagree on this, but we love the same word, and we love the same Savior, and so we can serve the Lord together as long as we don't make this idolistic and divide over these things. But for me, in the end, it comes down to not only just eschatology, but it comes down to ecclesiology. Our Father loves the bride of Christ. And though the church down through the age has suffered in many ways, Christians have suffered very difficult. But overall, the Father loves his church, and I believe he will not pour out his full, unbridled wrath on this world without rescuing his children. And again, I think that fits in several, probably, views. And I think that's what this is doing. It's showing us the love of God, that, that we've got to be changed. He's got to get us out of here and get us with him. And then he turns his attention to judgment. Now, again, please don't miss the thrust of this passage and get lost in eschatology. I think, I think so many people get into the weeds there, and, I, and it's okay. Some, are, some can handle it. Others can't. But don't get into the weeds and miss the worship of this passage. This is pure, unadulterated worship of a God who can resurrect the dead and make us alive eternally. That's what this is about. He transforms our body of flesh and blood into an eternal body like his son. And when that trumpet blows, all God's redeemed will be changed and none will be neglected. He'll lose none of them. 
The dead will rise in an incorruptible state, and those who are alive at the coming of Christ will be transformed and will be changed. And notice, look at in verse 52, at the end he says, we, he includes himself. Paul uses his personal pronoun to include himself with all believers, those in the grave and those who are living. The main verbs are passive here, meaning this is something he does to us, something we don't do to ourselves. And the scriptures are clear that our, our only Father who knows all things, he'll, he'll send his Son, and Paul is anticipating this imminent return. Even with all his eschatological knowledge, he's, in, he's anticipating in a moment the return of Jesus Christ. And again, I think that fits in many views. Now, like the apostles, we have to let God be God. When they ask Jesus, when is you're going to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. In Acts chapter 1, he says, look, the Father determines the seasons and times. You let him do that. You go preach the gospel to all the nations. Isn't that what he says to them? And yet too many Christians get lost in the weeds trying to figure out what only God knows. And I, I, I think eschatology can be super worshipful if you handle it right and make Christ the center of it. But that's not what happens sometimes. People leave churches. Division happens because they think this and that, and you're not over here. Nah. I, I think there is an importance to right interpretation. But if it doesn't land on the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we all missed it. And so let's work hard to do those things. I love John chapter 14. Jesus, is at, Jesus says, when I come again, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And that's what the angels told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. You see that Jesus, that same Jesus who's resurrected and going up, he's coming back the same way. That's what you're going to be like. There's an anticipation for his return. Three, death swallowed up the victory, excuse me, death swallowed up by the victory of immortality. Look at 53 through 55. I'm going to go a little quicker now here. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, notice just real quickly these four demonstrative pronouns. And, and when I say demonstrative, that's, that's, a, that's a term to recognize them. But to me, they just jump out when you look at them. The, the little word this. Look at this over and over. This perishable must put on imperishable. This more. Look what he's doing. He's trying to zero you in so there is no doubt in your mind that this can't go to the kingdom. He's got something better. And notice he chases right behind that with the, with the word must. This must be changed. So whatever you're thinking, put that aside. It's wrong. This can't inherit the kingdom of God. He has a body that he must inherit. Notice the word put on, beautiful word. It's used throughout scripture. It means to dress, to be clothed in, uh, to wear something, to be completely covered in. God has a brand new covering for us, body for us, outfit it for eternity. And again, these Greek words are all in the passive, implying that God is the agent. Now the believer must be clothed, right? Like God, he has to be clothed in imperishable and immortal body. And you can't dress yourself, God must do that. And so when you look at all the syntactical structure of the sentences here, it makes you understand that the believer 
can't do this for himself. And, and here, more importantly, is there's coming a day where the past will be completely done away with. The past is done. It'll be washed away. All the tears and all the mourning, all will be washed away. And we shall be with our Lord. But notice the end of verse 54. Here Paul's quoting of all places, of all places, when the context of Israel and the context of prophets going to Israel in the time of Isaiah and all the difficulties that are going on, he quotes Isaiah 13, 14 here. And, and it's worth going back and looking at the context and that if you, <laughs> when you have time. But here he fills his mouth with the worship of God. And look what he says. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up. It's no more. And then he chases this with a, with a phrase out of Isaiah chapter 28. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And that's pure prophecy. There's all kinds of people that think they're prophets today or prophetess, and they're all telling you a word from God. I'm going to tell you a word from God. Death will be swallowed up. Call me a prophet if you want. That's what Scripture says. And so I'm here telling you what God says with, with full authority from his word to tell you what God says, not what Scott says or some guy that wants to make himself an apostle. This is beautiful, isn't it? Isaiah 25, 8 says, he will swallow up death for all time. This is where Paul's getting this from. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from his face. That's where John gets it from in, in Revelation. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all of the earth. Now he comes back to Israel. For the Lord has spoken. It's amazing. Study it in context. And Paul uses this. Death is not viewed, look, death's not viewed like some hurricane that comes along and there's a destructive thing. And, you know, wow, we're glad the hurricane's gone. But look at all our problems. That's not how the Bible looks at it. Death is gone and everything with it's gone. And everything is anew. Everything is transformed. It utterly reverses the effects of death. They're gone. The senses of death is absolutely defeated, is what Paul's saying. There is no story of a grim reaper. Isn't that as pagan as it gets? There is no story of a grim reaper. To live is Christ, to die is Philippians 1. 21. I hope that's right. Isn't that? Are you looking at death that way? And when Christ comes and adds flesh and blood because the children had flesh and blood to his nature and he dies and he beats sin, Satan, and death, he takes death out of the hand of Satan. He robs him of it. You will not let my children ever see the second death because my death covered theirs. It's beautiful, isn't it? And the passage is seeking to help us now, brothers and sisters, live victoriously, die victoriously. How about that? We talk about, let's live victoriously as Christians. How about dying victoriously as Christians? Well, Scott, that's not as fun. Are you sure? It wasn't too long ago, I was with a, a man that was passing away, and, and there were tears, and my family was around, and... and I finally just looked at him and I said, what's the worst can happen to you? He said, I could die and go with the Lord. Whole tone changed in the room. He says, God, please don't come to my hospital room. 
in that moment, I want to be real. I want to say, what's the worst that can happen to you? You're going to be transformed in a twinkling of an eye. You're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to be outfitted for eternity. All death and all of its problems and everything that this world has to offer is gone. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, right? Is that what the church said? Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Thank you. I got to go. Four. four. Uh, victory over sin in the worship of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Man, that clock. Look, I came out of the Philippines, hour and a half sermon, so I'm still adjusting. All right? 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these closing verses here, Paul once again brings us face to face with the seriousness of sin. Death in and of itself is not the dangerous outcome we fear. Death is the wages of sin. Sin is what we fear. Sin is what brings about death, and he's making sure they understand that. And Paul wants them never to forget that sin has, has his goal is death. And our sin, now then you think about this now, this makes you go to the gospel because our sin was put on Jesus and the Father judged him like he committed our sins and he put him to death for those sins. And so his substitutionary death, his pardon, his forgiveness for our life has now granted us eternal life, has removed the sentence of eternal hell and damnation from us. And so Jesus' finished work on the cross grants forgiveness. That's what it does. And that changes everything. And where there's forgiveness, death has no sting, is what he's saying. So let me ask you a question. Are your sins forgiven? Can you say that? Can you say that with, with confidence in Christ alone? And, and, you, and you put all your hope in Christ alone. My sins are forgiven in Christ alone. Because I couldn't do it. It had to be somebody greater than me, someone sinless, someone from God, someone from heaven, someone who is God. My faith is in Christ alone. My faith is in his grace alone. I have nothing to offer him. I'm empty-handed. Do you say that? Do you receive it through a supernatural faith in Christ? One day you didn't believe in the power of Christ, and when you got saved, you believe in him completely. You know it's something not of you. You have a faith from God. Do you have that? Do you understand by his word alone? Or are you coming up with this stuff on your own? Are you now a deep believer in the word of God? Do you believe it as a, it's God's all-sufficient, authoritative, all-powerful word of God, and you place your hope, your marriage, your life, your everything, your eternity in this word of God? Is that what you believe? And do you believe that it's resulting for the glory of God, not for yourself? See, that's the great solaces of scriptures, isn't it? That's what it is. And so Paul says, do you believe this? Some of you shouted out yes loudly, and others, I hope, said yes in your heart. But doubtlessly, there's people in here that said, you know, Scott, I don't know. Friend, do, don't leave this room without sitting down and talking. There's be elders down front. I'm down front. There's guys back there and gals back there. Find somebody. Because death and decay and judgment awaits you with no hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Are your sins forgiven? Period. Can you say that? Do you believe it? 
See, now notice what he does next. He brings in the law. The power of sin is the law. The law finds its origin in God. God is holy, and, and so is his law. His law is holy, and his law is just. His law is good. And because of sin, our wills have been corrupted, and the law is unable to be kept by a person. It cannot bring you to the state of salvation because man has fallen. His will is corrupted completely. And being placed under the law in our sinful state teaches us that the character of God, it teaches us he's perfect. And having an eternal relationship with him is out of reach with us. So he brings the law in and says, you're fallen, you can't get to me that way. Oh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then, I'm going to close with this, I promise. Just hang on with me. I'm so sorry, children, people down there. The greatest, one of the greatest conjunctions in all of Scripture is right here. Verse 57. But. I mean, you look at verse 56, and you go, we are done for. Death has stung, and it's left its poison in us unto death. The law has pushed on us and showed us we are fallible, and we have no way to God on our own character. But, look at that. Oh, I just got that all marked up in my Bible. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. The finished work of Christ, ordained by God the Father from the foundation of the world, has now satisfied the claim of death and law and all of that. He's taken care of it all on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He who knew no sin, he, he made, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so God in Christ has dealt perfectly, sufficiently, authoritatively, once and for all with the problem of sin. And God in Christ took the stinger of death from us. And, and death staggers off like a bee who's lost its singer and dies. That's what death is now. Death took its best shot, didn't it? But Christ prevailed, and we won in Christ. And so he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 57 is just a triumphal chorus that never gets old. And so, brothers and sisters... What will you do with it? Is he worthy of praise? Is he worthy of your life today? Man, I, I, I don't want to go from here and just go, man, it's going to be great. Heaven's great. I'm going to go live the same way I've lived all my life. It's got to impact us. It's got to change us. That's what Paul was after. Not a bunch of complaining, whining Corinthians that have a worldly view of God and the Bible and all that stuff. He wants Corinthians to walk with Jesus. And that's what the Bible wants us to do. Are you walking with Jesus? What are you, you tight-gripping, white-knuckling? What do you need to let go? Father, thank you. We want to sing you a song, an old song, Lord, that we have victory in Jesus. And I pray that this will motivate and strengthen us. Hear us sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.